0: I was a sophomore in high school during the invasion of Iraq and the start of Operation Iraqi Freedom. I remember seeing the statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled down, people dancing in the streets. I remember being in basic combat training when news broke out that they had found Saddam in his spider hole. And as the war continued, as we all had it, sort of looming over our heads, the knowledge that it wasn't if, but when, and how many times, and when you came back, would you still be yourself? Or would you become someone very different? Someone that your family doesn't recognize, right? That was, that was always in the back of my head. That was a worry that stuck with me. And then there was this sort of feeling at the time that if you hadn't gone then there was something wrong right like they looked at you like where have you been like why haven't you gone and now you know i understand that sometimes your number just doesn't get called i get that and i was so excited and nervous and scared when my number came up and i was called and i showed up to Uh, The 47th Transportation Company at Al-Assad, Iraq in the summer of 2009. The place where we lived was called containerized housing units and... was kind of like a trailer and my first roommate is about 10 years older than me real goofy guy real fun guy he got to iraq about a month after i did and we had a really good time together and i remember we'd wake up early on sundays because we had sundays off or you know worst case scenario we had to report in at 1300 on a sunday and on that Sunday morning, we would get up and then we'd go get coffee at Green Beans. And then, you know, sit outside and just kind of hang out, right? Watch the sunrise. It's like 6.30, 7 a.m., something like that. There were libraries on the base, right? Where people would send books to deployed soldiers, right? And then we'd see these buildings and they're just full of books. They'd say, just pick one you know they're for you and I think oh thank you (laughs) and there was this weekly event when we first got to Alisad called salsa dance night right and salsa dancing back in the states before I had ever deployed was always something that I had heard of in the abstract but understood it to be something that uh tall attractive latin men did and not uh awkward chubby people from the trailer park so much and so I thought, Oh, you know, I'll just I'll just learn how to be funny. Salsa dancing's not for me. I never even found myself in a place where salsa dancing was even an option because it was so far out of my expectation of life. But on the fob in Alassad, there was this little dance area, right? Where it was like once a week you had salsa dance night, and then you go there and The male to female ratio in Iraq was something like 1 to 5, right? at least where I was at during that time in 2009. And so, you know, you go there and something like 8 out of 10 guys hadn't even seen a woman in months. And it's like you're in 7th grade again. We went to the far side of the world, to the war, to go back to the 7th grade spring formal where there's a bunch of guys standing against the wall and then one out of 10 guys know what they're doing and they're just trying and they're dancing and they're looking really good and the girls are enjoying it and then there's another 10% of the group where I comment that didn't know what they were doing but knew that victory was not to be found by standing against the wall so <laughs> I didn't really find victory dancing either but you know it, you get points for trying sales right there were flea markets it was very much like being back in the double wide trailer park of my youth and i would hear of such things from units cycling through al where if you're leaving al there's many things that you're not trying to take back to the states with you right well for one the electronics over there run on a different current than the electronics in america you know they run on the european electric current and not the american one so you need an adapter or things will explode i blew up a coffee pot one time because i plugged in uh, a european style electricity coffee pot into an american style outlet Right, Without using an adapter first, you had to be careful on what you had. And so many of those people that had spent a year acquiring things to make their deployment more comfortable were trying to get rid of them, which was easy pickings for those of us that had just arrived. So I went there and you could see these boots that were cut up, of course, and thrown over the telephone wire and people had been writing on them. You could see the unit they were from. And then I went and I bought a television and I bought a coffee pot, the one that I eventually blew up. And a lot of very, very used things to make my experience more comfortable in the trailers we're living in. Army units are set up by something called a table of organization. The table of organization allocates how many of what type of soldier you're allowed per type of unit. And so for a truck driving unit, they weren't authorized any medics under their table of organization. But there were four of us, so they were kind of surprised to see me because I was number four, right? I mean, everyone loves a medic, so they were happy to see me. And we had an E5, we had two E4s, and myself, a private first class. And the E5 was an ex-Navy vet who decided to come back in and round out a 20-year pension. He was a real good guy. And he had the presence of mind to cut a deal with the ncoic of the local troop medical clinic and so all of the medics were rotating through that right we occasionally went on convoy duty with 47th trans but for the most part we were fob medics at least i was the others went out more than i did and i remember the tmc itself It's a long building and you walk in right there's a long hallway and i remember the bench where the sick call people used to sit and wait for their turn and as you walk forward there were these patient rooms to the left and the main desk was in the center of the building and that's where we did sick call every day that's where we we saw patients as you go further past the check in point in the center of the building where they took your name and who you were, there were classrooms in the far back, right? There was the NCOIC's office, there were the doctor's offices themselves. And we taught the combat lifesaver course, which I loved. I loved teaching uh, the combat lifesaver course, especially the uh, needle sticks, right, for the IVs. At the time, Uh, They were still teaching IVs in the combat lifesaver course, and the idea was, let's say someone gets their leg blown off, and with that leg being blown off, they lose a lot of blood. And the first step to treating such a extreme wound would be to throw a tourniquet as high and as tight as you can get it. Because the cat tourniquets had this little plastic windlass. And we had the saying that you keep twisting the windlass, which creates more and more pressure on the leg until the bright red bleeding stops. And there's certain intravenous fluids you could give once you've stopped all of the bright red bleeding, of course, that would act as volume expanders, right? And those volume expanders would fill up and keep the blood pressure going. Right. It's a band-aid. It's buying time, right? You're buying minutes, maybe hours if you're lucky, if everything else goes well. Not that I ever experienced that firsthand, right? This is all just the doctrine that I'm going off of right now. And after a while, they stopped teaching IVs in the combat lifesaver course, right? I'm sure the doctrine is totally different now than what I remember last time I taught it because the IV is the sort of fun sexy thing that's the one that's everyone wants to do because it's the cool one and it is pretty cool but they're running into a problem where you would have troops on convoy and then an improvised explosive device would go off and then instead of following the steps right you had inexperienced non-medical personnel who were very legitimately scared and for good reason right and so their first thought was what's the thing I remember the most oh a needle stick that's the thing I remember the most and so they went for the needle stick right instead of you know putting a tourniquet on someone's leg and so there was a couple instances of soldiers that died because non-medical personnel gave the improper treatments at the wrong time and if you give someone IV when they're missing a leg and you don't throw a tourniquet on what's left of his leg you're not really doing much and i don't blame the non-medical personnel for getting that wrong because it's not their primary focus to know that and so they took it out of the combat lifesaver course and then they just did tourniquets after that and they focused heavy heavy on tourniquets which makes sense the army always It's it's a reactionary organization, right? They're always fighting the last war, right? Because they got really good at fighting the last war, right? They've done that already. And speaking of needle sticks, I remember the first life I saved as a medic. And I remember I showed up for sick call one day, right? And I got my big 24-ounce mother of all coffees from green beans. We call it the Moac And I see these two soldiers, right? You had one guy, he was uh, a National Guard soldier. He was overweight and he was kinda, like his eyes are rolling in the back of his head. He was, he wasn't doing good, right? He was, the the, the gentleman was clearly struggling. And then there was his friend. We called it the battle buddy, like his battle buddy was with him. And I remember his battle buddy's flacking me down. He's like, hey doc. (laughs) I think my friend's in trouble, and I took one look at him, and I was like, oh, no, and I've been a medic at this point for maybe 90 days, right, effectively five minutes, and so I take him into the patient room, and I'm like, you know, we can put you ahead of the line, and I'll figure out the paperwork in a second, and so I put him on a patient bed, and then I 23 skidoo over to the NCOIC, and I'm like, hey, uh, there's a guy And he uh, needs an IV because the sick gentleman, uh, he was a heavy guy who didn't eat enough food, who didn't drink enough water while unloading Connexes on a hot desert day in the Middle East. That's a recipe for a bad day, right? And then he just, I told the NCO, I see all this, and she's like, yeah, sounds great, do that. And so I run over there and I, you know, I have the trash can next to him, and then I just, throw a needle in his arm, and get a line going. And uh, yeah. After that, he was good. Right? I mean, I gave him like two or three bags and had him sit there and just, we kept putting fluid into his arm until he had to pee. Yeah. That was the first life I saved. And I got to see him after that several times because I'd see him at the PX on the base in Alessand and... He'd be like, oh, hey, doc, yeah, no, don't worry, I got your, you know, I'd have, like, a monster and, like, a DVD or something, and he would absolutely insist on buying it for me, right? And it wasn't, like, you know, it wasn't Hacksaw Ridge or anything. My experience in Iraq was a lot closer to Scrubs than Hacksaw Ridge, right? But the right interventions given at the correct time can save a life. And I would see him again one more time after that where he went through our cls class and boy howdy did he pay attention right because he was about to go out on convoy himself and so we threw all of the knowledge that we had and we gave him all the supplies we could fit into a bag we gave him a cls bag and then we shook his hand and said head us up when you get back and i don't remember if i saw him again after that but The idea that the life I saved could potentially go out and save others. That's tremendous. That's I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have had that experience to be able to help somebody and then have that somebody go through the class I was helping teach and then teach him some of the skills we had to go save. others (laughs) that's I think that's what a legacy is oh my We had a laundry service on the base where local nationals were hired to clean our laundry for us. They were paid something like $4 a day at the time, I think. Which is nothing in America, but in the ruined economy of wartime Iraq, it was everything. We would write our names on a form and attach it to the laundry bags on a weekly or biweekly basis. And then one night I couldn't find uh, my army ID and my NCO had the bright idea to suggest maybe you left it in your uniform and then submitted the uniform to the laundry service. And I said, oh, that's right. That's why you're in charge. Then he suggested I go off to inspect the laundry service and see if it's there. And so I spent probably 30 to 45 minutes uh, going through disgusting army uniforms and barracks bags and things like that looking for my bag so I could go through my disgusting uniforms and look for my army ID and I don't remember what the Iraqi guy's name was and I think he barely spoke English but he helped me find it and I gave him the biggest hug and I was so happy And after that, every night I would put my keys, my ID and my dog tags, uh, in my right army boot before I went to bed next to my bunk. So like when I got up and I was, you know, half asleep and wandering through the, the, the room and I was like, ah, where's my stuff. And then I'd put my boot on and realize, oh, it's in my boot. Right. And if it's silly and it works, it's not silly. i was stationed in fort gordon i watched the 1970s television program called mash which stood for the mobile army surgical hospital and it was about a group of doctors and nurses and soldiers in the korean war and in the show there was a character named hawkeye pierce and hawkeye pierce was one of the two main characters and he was kind of a you know, a bit of a rebel, a bit of a free spirit, a bit of a ladies' man. And there were these episodes that really stuck with me called the Dear Dad episodes, where the episode would start, you would hear Hawkeye Pierce's voice say, Dear Dad. It would narrate the letter that the character is writing home to his father over like a montage and things that were happening in the episode and jokes, and the narration would break in between scenes and then it would kind of like tie the whole like episode together in a great way. And so taking inspiration from that, I wrote my own series of dear dad letters where I just told him about my day. But I sent him to his old Yahoo account and it's kind of a cool update that I got to do. And I didn't save any of the emails that I sent back and forth with my father. At least I don't think I did. But the one I remember the most was during the one convoy I went on and they just sent me out just to kind of pop my cherry because at the time they were only sending out one medic per convoy because things were that quiet. So I was kind of the second medic, right? And it was fine. I rode in the back seat of a big truck and you know, had my old Microsoft Zoom because yes, this was 2009 and just kind of watched. I watched Iraq go by on the road, and we left from Al-Assad to Baghdad, and the NCO in the truck was like, yep, that's Ramadi, and yep, that's Fallujah, and, you know, pointed out these cities, these legendary battlefields that I'd heard about my entire military career, and I kind of got a glimpse of them. I wasn't there for any of the exciting parts, but I could be like, oh, that's what that is, and, you know. It's kind of a greatest hits tour, right? And that tells you how lucky I was compared to a lot of my peers. And I would often tell my dad that in the uh, Dear Dad letters. And by the time we got to Baghdad, it was so cool emailing my father and saying, Hey, I'm in these legendary places. I'm on the far side of the world. I did it. I'm here. I'm such a small player, but I'm on the world stage. And on the way back from Baghdad... I remember being on convoy at about 1 in the morning and we pulled off and we had what was called a class 6 download, which means you had to pee on the side of the road. And I remember we're 5 miles, 10 miles outside of Baghdad proper. The city's far in the background. And I remember i peeing on the side of the road and we got people pulling security and stuff. And I'm like, huh, this would be an interesting way to die. <laughs> Just with your dick out taking a piss. <laughs> But thankfully I was very lucky and I owe an endless debt of gratitude to the men and women who came before me and gave me the quiet, calm experience that I had the, the sort of experience where, where I come home and I'm myself still, I got to come home and not be somebody I didn't recognize. And that's so important. And I'm so grateful. And much like Hawkeye Pierce, who was my hero for quite some time, I got to spend the night while on Radio Watch answering letters from children at a school where there was a special needs school in Texas where the teacher had signed up for one of the many programs that the USO offered that would gather letters for soldiers to answer. And I still have some of them. One from a girl named Samantha said, Dear soldiers, thank you for taking care of the country. You helped us at PE at school. You are all caring for our country. You're keeping our country safe. Soldiers, you are special. You help our world and welcome home. Another one said, I heard you are an army doctor. I wanted to know if anyone has gotten injured and must be really cool working with all of this medicine. Cold wishes from Olivia's brother, Charlie. I'm not sure who Olivia is, but I'm sure she's nice. And I was so grateful to take part in what was an ancient tradition Almost stretching back centuries of civilians back home, sending handwritten letters to soldiers on the far side of the world, wishing them well and thanking them for their service. And I got to be so lucky as to take part in that grand tradition. I'm such a lucky guy. I actually went on vacation twice during the war and it was back to back so that kind of tells you how lucky i really was the first time i went on vacation was the winter of 2009 and i went on a four-day pass to qatar which was this idea this sort of mythical thing I had heard of from so many people who had come back off deployment and I thought oh now it's my turn I get to I get to do that too and I get to be a part of that and I get to share in that experience and I remember when when we had landed riding along the highway and seeing neighborhoods of rich wealthy families with like walls around their neighborhoods and The NCO who picked us up was talking to us and he was telling us about how strict a lot of the rules were in the country and how we had to stay in specified areas. A lot of it boiled down to, you know, don't talk to women you don't know because in Arab culture, they're very strict about women talking to men that are outside the family that the men in the family don't know. And, you know, so I was like, that's fine. I'm just I'm happy to be out of Iraq for the weekend. That's great. And so we got to the barracks on the base. It looked like they had a warehouse that they retrofitted. And there are like all of these different barracks rooms. And we had all these options of things to do during that four-day weekend. And there was this, looked like an Irish pub on the American base where you're allowed to have three beers. And you had little tickets and he'd walk up and he'd hand the guy a ticket for a beer. And while that was happening, there were these hookah parties that were going on, and people would go outside and just smoke tobacco, and we'd stay out there at the hookah parties. That first night, we were staying out there real late, and then the next day, we went to this beach party uh, hosted by the Chief of Staff of the Qatari Army for all the US troops in the area. and. You had to pay like $25 to go. And I'm like, well, I got nothing but money right now cause I'm deployed. So of course I threw money at it. And when we got to the beach house itself, the NCOIC told us, you know, you can ride the jet skis or ride the camels or drink as much beer as you want. And I was like option three. And so we had lunch and then I just sat there on the beach and drank about five or six Heinekens and just really kind of enjoyed myself. And then I heard someone yell, medic. What happened was, was that one of the U.S. contractors was drinking a bunch of beer and then got on a jet ski and then slammed into another jet ski. And at that point, I had been a medic for about six months. And looking at this guy's leg, it was kind of his sort of upper thigh was real purple. And I was a little drunk and I was pretty green still, right? And I going off of doctrine and not a lot of experience thought, oh my God, he's got a closed femur fracture. That's where your femur bone breaks, right? Punctures an artery in your leg and you bleed to death inside your leg (laughs) without any blood leaving your body. That's the first thing that came to my head because I was pretty new. And I thought, oh my God, he's got a closed femur fracture. And he's going to be dead in five minutes, and there's nothing I can do. And then I realized, oh, he's screaming really loud. He's fine, because if he had a closed femur fracture, he'd be in decompensated shock, and he'd just be, like, circling the drain and just, you know, heading home to glory. And then the uh, EMT showed up from Doha, and I turned them over to him. There was a colonel there, and I spoke to him because his colonel was, he knew the thing was going on, and so he wanted to check and see what was happening. I turned to the colonel, I said, sir, I'm about five or six beers in, so I'm just going to turn this over to them. And he was, you go back onto the party, doc, you did a good job. I was like, oh, roger, sir, thank you very much. And to be abundantly clear, I did absolutely nothing that day besides show up, right? But I kind of got this cool, like, small moment of recognition from the local guys that owned the beach house, right? To my knowledge, that was the Qatari chief of staff. And it wasn't anything flashy. It wasn't even like... It, all, all it was was this, right? I was asked to eat on the officer side of the tent. Because in the Qatari military, you had the officers and the enlisted. And the divide is much, much starker than it is in the Western militaries, right? Like, the two shall never meet. And... When the NCOIC of us said, hey, the Qataris want you to eat on their side of the tent, right? I didn't speak to them. There wasn't, like, a ceremony or anything. That's all it was. It was recognition of, oh, he did a good job. He deserves to eat with us, right? Which was kind of cool. And I'm walking through the line, and then I think I spoke to one of the members of the qatari military once maybe right there was a tall arab bearded gentleman in a long sort of white cloak or mandress or whatever you want to call it i don't know what the exact term is and there's a bearded guy who's got a like a kebab right and then he holds it up to me and he goes you want to eat and i was like oh no thank you i didn't know what it was And then he goes, okay. And then I went to go eat. And that's literally my entire interaction. If I could do it again, I probably would have accepted whatever that gentleman was offering. And then tried to talk to him and learn his name and see if I could like be friends. And then, you know what I mean? Just like kind of embrace where I was at. I was like 22, maybe 23 at the time. And I didn't really understand what that moment might have been, right? Like, I didn't know the potential that was there. But it was honestly a real confidence booster for me at the time. What a great, great weekend that was. And after that was mentor leave which is another cool thing i got to do that i had heard so much about because of the years before that during the wartime you'd always hear people saying oh i went to brazil for my two-week leave and i went here and i went there and they went to all these fancy amazing places and i just wanted to go home and the two-week period didn't start until you got back stateside which was cool and There is a girl from my unit who I flew out to Kuwait with, right? She's a buddy of mine, and I think she was a mechanic in the motor pool. But yeah, it was kind of cool, like, jet-setting around the Middle East with her for like a day or so, and then we kind of went our separate ways. And she went on to become a travel nurse, and that was Nurse Jamie Gary who was nice enough to make an appearance on the show in December of 2020, as she explained what it was like for her to work in COVID wards across the country. And then I got back to Indianapolis where everyone was at the time. And I remember I was in the living room of my parents' apartment and my brother, who's like maybe 16, maybe 17, something like that, is chasing my mom around with an ice cube right and acting like he's gonna put it down the back of her shirt they're just playing right like family does like normal everyday people do they just they're playing a the game and i was so wound tight all i heard was my mom saying make him stop make him stop i didn't hear the fun and the, the gentle humor and the you know the lack of threat in her voice right all i heard was my mother saying make him stop and so I cock my right fist and I'm about to make him stop. And then I realize what's happening. And I'm like, oh, he's just chasing her with an ice cube. Oh, oh, you're a crazy person. <laughs> and then I go into the dining room to sit. And my brother follows me in there. He goes, hey, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm just wound a little tight right now, right? My brother, who has no history of violence whatsoever, I just, when you come back from a combat zone, You know, even though nothing happened to me, there was no combat I was in. I was still so ready for anything to happen at any time. And when I got home, I was still kind of there because I was still kind of had my guard up everywhere. And I apologized profusely. And then after that, I remember we're in this pet store and, you know, my father is talking to this little puppy in the pet store and... He's just being really sweet and saying, ah, I wish I could take you home. Yes, I do. And so I said, well, you know, dad, he's yours. (laughs) Cause you know, I was coming off deployment, so I had nothing but money. And so I bought him the dog and then I bought him the cage and I set him up. And then I got to my parents' apartment and then I woke my mom up by tossing a puppy on her face and the puppy was just excited and licking her face and peeing on her and stuff. And then I got on a plane and flew away. (laughs) So I'm like, look, you have a dog now. And now I'm leaving the country. (laughs) She was so pissed. And for good reason, right? Because we didn't bother to ask her if she wanted a dog. And but that's, you know, she really loved the dog. And the dog became my dad's best friend because, you know, he was finished raising kids. And so he just kind of hung out with his best friend all day because he was retired. And yeah, I just hung out and that little dog would run into the chicken coop. And then the chickens would chase the dog out and stuff. It was a good time. And yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. The next episode, we'll talk about my time when I got back to Iraq, because while I was gone, my unit had changed bases. right? We started off in Al-Assad and then we went to COB Adder, right? Cobb Adder. And I wrapped up the last four or five months of my tour there.